everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Well, yeah, ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me, what is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 328th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we're going to dive into a little bit of Jurassic news regarding Jurassic World Dominion's box office. We're going to talk a little bit about Camp Cretaceous and some fun information on the animatronics and visual effects in Dominion. And after that, we're going to get into the real good stuff here by heading into the Visitor Center to hear a fantastic conversation between Tom Jurassic and his guest, Kevin Jenkins. Now, Kevin, uh, if you you haven't heard about Kevin Jenkins, Kevin was the production designer on Jurassic World Dominion. You know, a little film you may have heard of, you may have seen recently. So get ready to hear some fun insights into the production of Jurassic World Dominion. I am super excited for you all to check this one out, so please stick around to hear the interview. Now, before we get started, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So, as Jurassic June and Pride Month both wind down here, I wanted to remind you all that we are still running the fundraiser for The Trevor Project over on our YouTube channel. Uh, If you have not heard about them, they're a great organization that focuses on suicide prevention and crisis intervention for LGBTQ young people who absolutely need your support. Uh, and, And as always, the Jurassic community is a very giving and thoughtful community, so if you'd like to help, Like I said, head over to our YouTube channel, find a video release this month, uh, which is June 2022. Click donate. All of your money will go directly to the Trevor Project. None of it will go to us here at the podcast. Um, And, uh, you know, we might just be a podcast that talks about Jurassic. Uh, You know, we might have that in common, but we are here to help people in need and push for change in whatever community may need your help. Um, Whether that's for, you know, in in the past we've helped out for the Black Lives Matter movement or organizations here like the Trevor Project. Uh, We've helped out kids in need during the holidays. Um, And and now specifically, you know, we're we're helping to stand up for women's right to choose. And, And I want everybody to understand that we are an ally in your cause. So again, head to our YouTube channel, find a video released this past month, and click donate, and we will always be there to help you. So moving over to some content that we've put out. Uh, If you did not get a chance to listen to last week's episode with Gary Girani, it was a fantastic episode. Uh, Another visitor center where Gary chatted all about the new book from Abrams Books that features all of the tops Jurassic Park trading cards. Please go check out that one. You can find the episode over on our website or any podcast platform out there. Just search for the Jurassic Park podcast. And uh, over on our YouTube channel last week, we did a live stream. There was a lot to talk about. We talked about Cam Cretaceous Season 5 and uh, some stuff regarding that. We talked about the Spinosaurus and how it's 
absolutely the best dinosaur there is. Uh, we talked a bit about Jurassic World Dominion. We talked about Universal Studios. There was so much to talk about, and uh, even more. I think we talked about the Maisie Lockwood adventures. There was a ton of stuff. It was uh, it was a great live stream, so please go check out that one. I'll put that video in the show notes. And this week, we do have another live stream for you. As always, they hit the, uh, the internet at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday night, so please check out our live streams over there. We've been having a great time uh, talking about Jurassic again, getting back to the basics here, talking about the news, all the latest stuff. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, who knows? I don't know what we're going to talk about this week. Probably some more Camp Cretaceous because the trailer's been released since then and some other stuff. But uh, yes, please join us Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we also do have an evolution video coming for you this month or this week and uh, maybe some other stuff. I've got some toy hunts. Hopefully I can get those out to you, but uh, who knows. But enough of all of that. Why don't we go ahead and get this episode kicked off with a little bit of Jurassic news from around the world. Eighteen minutes and your company catches up on ten years of research. Access me, program. Access me, security. These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, we hate being right all the time. But today, I guarantee it. So first up here in the news, after two strong weeks at the box office, Jurassic World Dominion is beat out by Top Gun Maverick. And Elvis, two films coming in at 30.5 million each, uh, with Jurassic World Dominion coming in at third with 26.4 million. So overall here in the States, we're looking at uh, $303 million, uh, like I said, domestic. International is at $445 million, and that equals the worldwide total of $748 million. That is a lot of money, a lot of money. It's doing pretty good. Uh, uh, now, Top Gun actually just crossed a billion, so that is doing very, very well. Biggest movie of 2022 so far. It's had a few weeks on Dominion, but uh, will Dominion reach that total? I don't know. It's it's looking, uh, it looking, looking like it might be a little difficult, but we'll see. It's still making a lot of money, so that's nothing to... Uh, to be too upset about it's still doing great if you want to see those facts and figures on jurassic world dominion's box office please head to the link in our show notes so over the past week we finally got another trailer for the final season of jurassic world camp cretaceous over on netflix which debuts july 21st and uh, guess what? It's it's appearing with uh, 12 new episodes. 12 new episodes. I think that's the most that they've had so far. So that is pretty great. Let me go ahead and read a little bit of the synopsis here from a press release. At this final chapter in this story, our campers are at a crossroads. On the one hand, they have never been closer to getting home. But on the other, they have never been in more danger of never seeing their families again. There is no clear path forward. They must simultaneously battle to survive the dinosaurs, as well as those that threaten these same creatures' existence. That little blurb there came from executive producer Scott Kramer, um, and uh, it does say that this final season has returning guest stars, including... Um, now, there's some people in here, if you don't want to hear, maybe skip ahead for a second, but you got some returning guest stars. Kirby Howell-Baptiste. That was uh, the scientist. Uh, was that May? Is that her name? Uh, I, I'm blanking. Um, and then you also had Haley Joel Osment, 
as Cash returning. And then you have two two other people here that are returning stars that are a pretty big deal. You've got one Glenn Powell, who is also in uh, Top Gun Maverick, uh, reappearing as Dave. And then you also have Jamila Jamil reappearing as Roxy. So finally, the return of Dave and Roxy here in the final season. Big news, big news. Can't wait to see that. That is right there in the press release. So don't get too mad at me. But we did see the return of Bumpy in the trailer, so that's cool. Who knows? Is it on the Manicor Island or on Nublar? I don't know. There's a lot going on in this trailer, a lot of dinosaur uh, entanglements, a lot of stuff going on, and a lot of back and forth with one of their own in Kenji. It looks like Kenji might be a bit of uh, a conflict with the uh, rest of the crew this season. But either way, it looks like the dinosaurs are angry, uh, looking to get back at some of these people. Who knows what's going to happen? Will the campers make it off the island? I assume so, but who knows? <laughs> if you want to see the trailer and read more about it, head to the link in our show notes. <laughs> Lastly, here in the news, we have a great article here from IndieWire focusing on the visual effects, the animatronics and stuff from Jurassic World Dominion that says how the, the Giganotosaurus became the Joker of the franchise. Now that's not really, uh, I know that's been something that's floating around uh, the, the webs for a little while now, the crew talking about how the Giganotosaurus was more of a Joker type of villain. I didn't really see that myself personally, but they have some theories here on why that was the case. One little anecdote here from John Nolan mentions that they wanted the Giganotosaurus to kind of represent the Jack Nicholson Joker makeup style with the scars running down the face. Okay, I guess I could see that. And they also mentioned that some of the Joker inspiration came from the lumbering movements of the animatronic and how that fed into how this creature appeared on screen. Now, there are some really, really fun facts in this article. I'll give you a few little tidbits here. They mentioned John Nolan's team created 14 different species with 48 total builds. They had the practical rig here for the Giga, which was 20 meters long and weighed nine tons and took six hours to move from one set to another. They also did a little comparison here to Jurassic Park, which had 70 CG dinosaur shots uh, compared to Jurassic World Dominion's 900 <laughs> CG dinosaur shots. So that is uh, pretty, pretty wild. Wow. There is a lot of really, really great information in this article. I don't want to give the whole thing away here. So please, if you want to read more from IndieWire, head to the link in our show notes. Uh, oh, there it is. There it is. Let's open up the doors to the Visitor Center, where we hear Tom's chat with Kevin Jenkins, production designer on Jurassic World Dominion. Hi everyone and welcome to a special episode of the Visitor Center here on the Jurassic Park podcast. I'm your host Tom and today we have a very special episode as we are joined by Jurassic World Dominion's production designer Kevin Jenkins. Kev, thank you so much for joining us. No problem, hello. 
Okay, so Jurassic World Dominion is by far the most diverse Jurassic film to date, with many different locations. We go from the luscious forests of Biosyn Valley in the Italian Dolomite Mountains, to the older and more mysterious streets of Malta, plus everywhere in between. With so many different locations packed in across the 2 hour and 30 minute runtime of the film, there are likely to be plenty of stories behind the locations. And that is what we are going to dive into with Kev today. Hold on to your butts as we're going to go deep behind the scenes at the latest entry in the Jurassic Saga. So Kev, firstly for everyone listening, why don't you let the listeners know how you first began working as a production designer? Um, how? I think everybody comes at this differently. I worked in the film business, mainly in visual effects, um, starting my career, funnily enough, on the Walking with Dinosaurs TV series, uh, Walking with um, Walking with Sea Monsters. Um, and I spent many years in um, visual effects. Um, towards, after about 10 years, I, I sort of started moving into um, design um, for film and I ended up designing a sequence um, on Prince of Persia but I did it on set working with Will Kroger the production designer and then that led into me creating art departments at Framestore that also led me to work with people who've become great friends and colleagues um, who actually in a funny way have an actual history of Jurassic and so one of my very closest friends um, in the business who kind of set me off on this path is Rick Carter who was the designer of Jurassic Park um, and Rick and I um, go back a long way we co-designed a Star Wars film together and that's also where I met Kathy Kennedy um, who I worked with for many years um, at Lucasfilm Industrial Light and Magic um, and sort of I kind of worked up through the ranks of visual effects I then transitioned into working mainly on set um, and then eventually J.J. Abrams asked me to design a Star Wars film after being the Lucasfilm design supervisor, the guy that draws more Star Wars than other people, it seems. <laughs> um, and that's also around the time when I met and became very good friends with Colin. And um, when I was working on episode nine, um, I went and had a, had, a, had a drink with Colin, who um, asked me about sort of halfway through the shoot of episode nine to design Jurassic World Dominion for him. Um, and so I kind of segued off of um, the end of episode nine and started designing Jurassic World almost back to back. Oh, wow. And it, it's really cool hearing it. Jurassic is essentially in the DNA of your career with your friendship with Rick as well. Um, I know a good friend of mine, Derek, who does Jurassic Time will be really excited to hear that because he's dedicated a lot of his work to chronicling all of um, Rick's work on the first film. So that's really awesome. Um, so... Something we were talking about before we started recording is production design as a whole, and it's a term which people look at, but they don't necessarily understand. So I think it would be really good to sort of open this conversation by giving us a little bit of oversight on what the responsibilities of a production designer are. Now, feel free to go as in-depth with this as you want. If you want to get into the weeds with it, feel free. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> I mean, everyone's every film's different. Every production design is different. Every scale of um, film is different. Um, and what I mean is the way that a two hundred 
million dollar blockbuster works, should we say, is very different, even though the job is the same on a ten million dollar film, and and that's and that it really is just a process of of scale. And so I, I've been used to doing very visual effects, design led, heavy films, but but what a production designer does, he is one of the. Um, three lead creatives sort of traditionally associated with a the film. There's the director. Um, and then normally the first person that's hired after the director is the production designer. And then the other person is the cinematographer. And then all the other people kind of sort of slot in around that. And so those are the people that, should we say, are the key people trying to um, create the visual look and the aesthetic of the movie and get that, on the screen um, and feed that out to everybody else. Um, and so what does a designer actually do? It kind of goes in waves. Um, you know, it, it, it is a huge task to manage massive amount of team, massive teams like on the, on, on, on the films I've done, but it's all relative because even on a smaller project, um, should we say the job is very similar in the sense that my job is to um, come up with and lead with the director, the design, of of the project now whether that's me drawing concepting 3d modeling myself like i did on jurassic um or whether it's working with concept art teams um or whether it's being a concept artist or whether it's um just sketching in a notebook and going we're making that or finding a photo um that's kind of the core beginning of the process which is to try to visualize the story because it's all about story um you know what what my job is is to try to make sure that that the audience can um follow a, a visual story through a whole a whole film and understand sort of where they are what's happening complement the scenes complement the the either the action or the conversation um and sort of you know, and I can talk about this later about, you know, why we design certain things a certain way. Um, and that's the design part of it. But the other part of it is it's my job to um, work and um, find the locations for the film um, and obviously work with the director of what he's looking to do and manage that process with the producers. It's also my job to, um, should we say, if there's a single thing that you look at in the film, the art department and the production designer, should we say, are the hub of the film that spread everything to everybody because they're the person that knows where the land is, they know where the sets are, they know where the vehicles are, and in a funny way, they are the core that everybody feeds into on a movie. Um, and it, again, it's going to sound very abstract because it, it's almost like an impossible job to kind of really truly define because everyone is completely different. But that that that's a sort of an overview. It's kind of like producing the creative side of the visual look of the movie, but making sure it delivers. The best way I describe the job is um, we start a film and there's a big train running and it's very, very expensive to run to stick that coal in the train. And I'm laying train track down in front of that train and I'm laying it down almost like um, every second before that train moves very fast towards me is the best way to describe it. Lots of very, lots of train track all over the place. And that can be, on a film studio or it could be around the world but that's my job is i have to run a, run in front of everybody else to make sure that they can even turn up and film definitely not a job i'm envious of hearing it that way i would say it's, well, I don't know. it's just the best job in the world <laughs> <laughs> you know you get to do some amazing things when you know when i stand on some of the sets that i've built and you turn them over to a director and a film 
you know, and the film crew and the actors turn up and, and all those kind of things. It's 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 the best feeling in the world when you, you know, might get to build some of the most incredible things that that people would love to see. And you as a Jurassic fan, wouldn't you like to stand in Biosyn? Yes. Yes, I would, Kev. <laughs> I just stand and built it and I stood in it. And so, you know, the same thing with the Star Wars fans going, you know, people going, oh, wow, it's lovely to go to, to, to Galaxy's Edge and stand in the um, stand in the Falcon. It's like, yeah, well, I built the real thing. So, again, you know, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. And I'm sure as you've seen, and I'm, I am I reckon this will come up later, but Jurassic fans certainly have latched on to you being in charge of the visuals and trying to find out all of the little details, especially with that Malta market. I know that's been very popular. This one was very different to the others where Colin and I made a decision at the front because, of, again, I have experience... You know, I was involved in the creature design on on various films through through my career, including Edge of Tomorrow and other films like that. And so, um, Colin asked me to design all the dinosaurs with him, rather than actually leave them to um, other other. Um, we wanted them to be a part of the film that would work in the sets and the environments. And so, I took on the job as well as designing the film um, as leading the design of the dinosaurs. Cool. Or the new. Lots of conversations about them later. Um, so it would be really good to initially set the scale for Jurassic World Dominion. Um, so it would be interesting to know how long the production of this film ran for and also how many different sets and locations were incorporated as a part of the film as well. Um, when did I start? I started in May 2018, I think. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and so we weren't intending to film and we didn't start filming until the uh, February of the following year, 2019. And so that kind of shows you, you know, how much sort of preps involved. Um, I did have conversations, story conversations, and early script conversations with Colin the previous December and even August in 2017. So, um, yeah, and, and, and so, and then as far as places go, um, getting close to 130 things had to be created. That, that could be anything from a Jeep all the way to a location. So I, I call them things, but, you know, the major things that need to be, designed and made by the art department that doesn't include the dinosaurs by the way cool okay so there's a lot of work that goes in which i think is quite clear when you see just how globe trotting the final film is it's as not well five yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so a huge thing which has been discussed online is Dominion being one of the first films to go back to production um, post-pandemic, which obviously was a huge thing at the time for the film industry and it continues to be a big thing. Um, I was just interested what kind of impact that had on you, because obviously designing sets, locations, was there any big impact there and any change in what you had to do or was there not? Not really. Um, we obviously we shut down in March like everyone else. Um, and straight away we were working out how this might affect us. Um, I decided to approach the producers um, and um, Universal straight away and say, let's use this as an opportunity to carry on designing. Because what 
it always makes me laugh when I read people on the internet that kind of go, oh, there's this, there's no plan, there's that, there's this. Making a film is like doing a painting. You think you know what it's going to look like, but you don't know what it's going to look like until you finish painting it. And that's the best way to describe every single film production. There is no caveat to this. Every single film production is we have a hope of what we're going to have and we have to get there. And so what that means is there's lots you don't know because you don't you can't simply have all the time to no film on planet earth has ever designed every single thing before you start it doesn't work that way it just can't there's not enough resources there's not enough time there's not enough information there's not enough curveballs such as a pandemic that you can take into account so universal were very graciously allowed me to continue when we shut down, like most of the entire worldwide film business was, they, um, I, I'm myself with um, three art directors and my supervising art director continued to design, to finalise the design of the set. So when we knew we could get back up and running, we could almost hit the ground running and just build straight away. Because, again, the reason people don't think, oh, why can't you plan like that is because you only have a certain amount of room. And so you have to do one thing and then you have to get it out of the way to do another thing. You can't do all the things because it's just too expensive. And so um, and so we basically planned for it. And then, I mean, we were the first up and we were back up and running as far as a film production goes. We were like three months before anybody. I was back on the Pinewood set. I think the first visit were like end of May or something like that. We were back there. So we were back very early. But no, but so, so um it didn't change the story. It didn't change the design. It didn't limit us. It didn't take anything away. It didn't alter our course. That's really good to hear. I'm glad that it wasn't that impactful. That's really good. It was impactful. We just worked around it. And the yeah. reason we could work around it is because... Um, um, because of the nature of the film, it's not a film apart from a few scenes, as you've seen. It, it, it doesn't, should we say, it's not called filming in the streets of London where you need a thousand people. It's set in Biosyn Valley with a certain number of people. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of crew that are actually in the background of the film all the time. And so um, and so, what I mean is we, we, we planned to, the nature of the film allowed us to um, to work with the problem without it affecting us in a way that it may have affected other productions yeah that makes sense and i think you can see that in the final product itself because when you do watch dominion it's quite hard to comprehend that that has been made during a pandemic which is good because clearly that shows that you managed to work through those problems which is what it's all about um so i am incredibly excited to dive into some of the locations and the broader design work that you did on this film um and i have to start with a certain organization because if i didn't ask you about this to begin with i think my friend tim would kill me so let's talk about biosyn how yeah. did you approach designing the rival to InGen in the new film? Um, they were the last thing designed. They were the thing that was designed. In I had an idea of where we were going to go, but all of those designs didn't really come through of how they all sit together until um, until we were actually sort of in production. I, again, I had all the pieces, um, but fundamentally, Biosyn... Um, 
was very much taking on the Michael Crichton because I've read all of Michael's books, even when even before Jurassic was out as a movie, I'd read the book. Um, but I'd also read all of his other books, whether they be, um, you know, Congo or the other ones before them or the ones after it. And so we were trying to create a um, again, it's like, what is this rival company that, that, that doesn't seem to have the same thought process as, say, what InGen has, which was always about, um, you know, InGen always seemed to be through Hammond, uh, you know, should we say interested in showing the wonders of what, what their technology are. Um, and Biosim were all, always, should we say, um, the people that, that, that kind of were prepared to do anything to get to where they wanted to be. Um, and they and and so the but the whole concept of biosim was to create you know as as Jeff himself says in the film was like a, a a place where you don't really notice the bad while you get on with the good because they look after you in a way that basically you're in a utopia so you're not really going to criticize in the same way and so that was the thought and and biosim valley actually originally wasn't going to be in the dolomites it was it was basically we were looking around around the world of where it was going to be but but biosim itself is made up of um three different places um and of course there's the main hub of the building um, there's the the forest itself, which is essentially based on a more, should we say, classic dinosaurian primordial old growth forest, which which you know which which we were looking at in Canada initially, and um, and then there's the inside of the building itself, and they're all kind of made up of different places. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. I like how you went for that sort of pure and clean aesthetic with Biosyn as well because I feel like with a lot of InGen specifically in sort of the second half of Jurassic World you get this really kind of utilitarian almost military aesthetic so then it's cool seeing this contrast with Biosyn as well where it's a lot sleeker a lot more modern. All of Biosyn is actually based upon real laboratories that are around today it's not made up I mean all of the all of the all of the labs all of the corridors all of the places I made are based upon real real places and real things um and so um and what i did was i just kind of made sure that they all so we say sat together so you understood that you were in the same place um and that includes a heavy use of 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 color in these places and 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 you know we go we go into the conversations about you know even how that how the how the you know how it functions and and how it kind of works and and you know and 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 whether they you know again whether fans care or don't care you know the amount of level of 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 story conversation we have on on how the whole thing should sit together like you know even even like the idea of the high hides and the hyperloop, this all changed quite a lot through the script. And then is even as far as where the labs are. And the fact that I did a distinctive, very yellow corridor for where the labs are, which is very representative of the story. I deliberately painted that corridor amber because amber is the problem with all of the Jurassic movies. It's the cause and effect of everything. And so the heart of the story, I painted an amber corridor. So... Ellie and basically Grant would go there at the heart of what they started in this journey in the 90s um, to try to solve the problem. And so nothing is done just because everything is done with a huge amount of thought and detail. 
So people can't see this right now, but I just had the dumbest grin on my face when you said about the amber then, and that makes so much sense. And I love how that just ties into the whole sense of the film being this big climax as well, which is really awesome. Um, And on the subject of tying into other things as well, you used the phrase high hide for the Biosyn Towers, which I really like as well, um, because obviously that is something that we've seen in the past. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about those platforms as well, because you have shared some really cool photos of them. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about how you approach designing those and having this really practical appearance where they can raise and lower as well? They were were never in the script um, as that. Um, I I have to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine who I've been working with for many years, Seth Engstrom, who's an amazingly talented um artist who who literally sent this picture in one day and went oh these things could go up or down and he just threw threw in this great piece of art and we just sort of latched onto it because because we were always having the giga scene in a place and and we were just going to have a building or something there and then the idea evolved from the idea of this high hide that it doesn't go up or down and so that's what i mean about how this whole thing is a collaboration um and and what seth did as a drawing was not what I designed in the end, but again, it's a spark of a spark of a spark of a thing. And um, and so the idea of the high hide is exactly what it was. The, the, the conversations about Biosyn Valley was you have the Biosyn building, you're inside a valley, and within the valley are however many of these high hides, observation posts, as we call it, to study the dinosaurs that the uh, Biosyn were making. Um, and you can only access the valley from underground, which is why the Hyperloop tunnels are there. So you don't disturb, you know, those Jeeps don't go out there unless they really have to. And so, um, and, and the idea of depending on the type of dinosaur is obviously you don't want to be around at the bottom if it's not one you want to be around and you want to go higher or lower. Um, and so that was the starting point of the conversation for the design. Um, but that actual set that, that people see um, on the north lot at Pinewood, there was that full size high hide was there, freestanding with 40, 40 people could stand on that thing. Oh. And a partial interior was made as well. Um, and that whole ladder worked. The whole thing worked apart from the up or down. The giga was there on set and the whole forest was there. I made, I brought in nearly 200 trees to make that entire set, including about seven of them were fully carved, massive, almost old growth trees as well for that sequence. Yeah. So, um, and that was all done, as I say, um, within about 15 meters of the, um, they kind of went back to back. Um, there was the set, which was the, um, the Biosyn courtyard in the in the centre of the building, which before that was actually the um, the ice lake for the dam. That's so cool, and it's it's almost as if you've read the show notes, Kev, because that leads nicely into my next question, which is that ice lake. Um, so one of the very few official set photos that we did see was somebody with the clapperboard stood in front of that location, and that was massive. Um, so can you talk a little bit about building a location that's that size, and are there any kind of challenges that come with building something that's got that sense of scale to it? Well, well, we need to film on it, and so um, that means you can't do ice because we're not prepared to kill everybody. Yeah. And so, um, and so, my construction manager had this wonderful idea of putting down lots of lots of black concrete that we dyed, and so we put down this massive pad of concrete out the out the front of the bond stage, um, and used that 
And so um, basically the ice lake is concrete. And if you hose it down with water, it looks like ice. Yeah. And so that really is what the ice lake is. There's obviously detail on it, um, specialist areas that the SFX team, Paul and his team did. But fundamentally, that's the core of the ice lake. And then I built the the rock walls around it either side, um, which would be the surrounding of the ice lake and the dam. Um, but both and both of those became the rock walls, and that wall was brought back up to be actually the walls of the interior of Biosyn, and those are the walls that were redressed to be the actual rock walls of the waterfall in in the Biosyn HQ as well. So there, it's exactly the same place. That's really cool, and you wouldn't think that from looking at it either, which just shows the power of <laughs> movie magic three or four months between them to turn them from one to the other. But also in the ice lake, I mean, I made a three-quarter sized um, tail section of the plane that was fully there as well, which is just just essentially the the, the final crashed bit. Um, and that was that was resting on top of it as well. So, um, and that was all made actually before the pandemic. We just had to kind of, should we say, cover it up. Yeah. And what was really good about the uh, not being on, on, on the location was the weather did a really lovely job for about two months of making it look even more natural by naturally weathering all the rock for me, which was because <laughs> we left it alone rather than film on it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You had almost divine intervention on the set. <laughs> there was a lot of, again, it, there was a lot of, there's always in any film, a lot of planning, bit of luck, yeah. bit of hope, bit of this, bit of that. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so I wanted to shift gears and go from a location that was naturally weathered by the British, the lovely British ecosystem, um, to somewhere a lot warmer um, and a lot older as well. So I really want to focus now on the Malta Black Market. And I'm yeah. interested, what were some of the most important decisions that you made when realising that environment? And how do you approach creating the vibe of a black market, which is more shady, more illegal than the other locations? Um, well, I, I, we did a lot of visits to Malta and we did look at some places to do it but with the amount of dinosaurs people and action there um i basically decided to build it on the bond stage so um that was where uh, you know that whole area including all the streets they're walking around when were done on the bond stage as well um there was a whole great big network um and the truck crash and actually that same dino market was turned into the um turned into the boatyard that Owen and the, and the Drosseraptors escaped from as well. And then basically when we finished using it, we shoved that truck through the wall of the bond stage to sort of do that. But to create the tone, um, I mean, really, it, I mean, I, you know, I look at lots of reference and, and, and you know, and, and just the main thing to do was to create um, the shape of, an, of a market that could be believably in Malta. And the, and the big liberty I took that is not in Malta is that giant arched ceiling. There is not one of those in anywhere in Malta, but I wanted it to be very distinctive. And so I, I basically um, did those giant arched ceilings. Um, but the rest of it, all of the actual stone um, is based upon um, samples we took of rocks and things in Malta. So all of the stonework was taken from there and then brought back and recast. And that's how we made the set. 
like, wow, okay, that's really cool to know. Um, I did, I wanted to give you a chance to talk directly to the fans about this set as well, because I know you've been getting a lot of questions about it. So I'm going to give you a chance to plant a seed here. Mm-hmm. Are there any small details in the multi-sets that fans should look out for in their subsequent rewatches? I stick Easter eggs all over my movies. I've mentioned to other people about how much of Jaws is in the boatyard. Yeah. Um, you know, because that entire... um. That entire boat is based upon Ben Gardner's boat, as I've said, on the internet with three barrels. And even on side of the boat, Ollie, who, who sort of who put that one together as, as, you know, again, there's the air tanks in there. There's the spear guns. You name it. It's just full of jaws. Um, at the other end of that one, there's obviously Talos, which is the name of the boat that is obviously after Ray Harrahausen, who's Lord of the Dinosaurs, all that kind of stuff. Um, in the dino market itself, um, there's lots of graffiti all over the um, – all over the set, which has um, many of my wonderful crew members' names, including my wife and my kids' names. Um, what else is there? Um, around the fight ring, and I can't find a picture of it, but I put it there somewhere, is Indiana Jones's hat, which is a tribute to Frank. Well, Frank's the producer, you see, and so uh, Frank does Indy. So the Indy's hat was around there. Um, I squeeze in lots of them. I can't remember, remember half of them. I mean, I, you know, I know in other places where I, I put them, but, you know, um, those are probably, I can't remember. We wrote all sorts of things all over the walls and did all sorts of things. Again, it's, it's really hard to remember now because it's been a few years, but... Um, yeah. yeah. You've convinced me to go back for another viewing just with Indy's heart alone, so it's all good. <laughs> um, so another set we see, and we see several in this area, is the Sierra Nevadas more broadly, where Owen's cabin is, um, yep. and obviously we get the crashed bus for um, Blue and Beta's nest as well. So can you just talk a little bit about those sets? And I was interested with um, the home for Owen specifically. Did you take any inspiration from the home that we see him building in Fallen Kingdom as well? Uh, we did, but knowing that it was just a carcass, yeah. Um, because you can actually buy those kit homes and just sort of put them up. Um, you know, we kind of looked at it and then sort of went in a direction because we needed to feel that they were able to be both isolated and self-sufficient. So solar panels, and we looked into all the things of how people can live off the grid and all sorts of stuff. And and, and there's a lot of that that detail in the dressing and stuff around there. Um, but but apart from that, I just kind of you know found some good references of when we were on recce's in Canada. I found some great places that were in the middle of nowhere and took some pictures. And it's a hybrid of, of various places, but it wasn't shot in Canada. No, that's cool to hear, though. I have actually been watching a few videos of abandoned places in Canada, and there's lots of interesting architecture out there for the sure. And, and the and the um and the house was shot in England. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, so there's loads of other sets throughout the film. You've got the Hyperloop Tunnels, um, the old Amber Mines, the US Fish and Wildlife Field Base, and also the Drive-In Movie Theatre as well. Um, yeah. So I wanted to give you an opportunity, really, to touch on any sets that we haven't spoken about that are really particularly special to you, or if there's any interesting stories about other sets that you'd like to share with people. Yeah, I had a lot of fun making the farmhouse, the Texas yeah. farmhouse. Um, so again, that's not Texas. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and, and that all that crop and that barn, um, was built and planted before we, so I, had, so basically the decision was made to plant the crop there and we planned that, um, 
you know, the year before to make sure that there would be an entire wheat field there for us for when we filmed. Um, the barn itself is only about 50 yards from the industrial farm that basically they break into in the first um, sequence. Yeah. Um, but the barn itself is inspired by Richard Donner's Superman barn from um, 1978. Um, and so if you look at that original barn that's, that, that Christopher Reeve's Superman was in, that kind of overall look, shape, in, in a proportion, and including when you go inside as well with the barn doors, and there's even a, you don't even see it because, again, it wasn't needed to be shot, but there's a trap door um, in there that the kids were on where they put the bucket on the, on the locusts. Um, and even in that trap door, I don't think I have it here anymore. I actually put kryptonite in the trap door oh <laughs> underneath it. So, um, so yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, the Hyperloop is obviously um, influenced by a lot of modern technology companies yeah. uh, that are doing actual Hyperloops. The Hyperloop is not a made-up thing. It's a real thing. Now, obviously, um, you know, I, I kind of put a little bit of my obsession with 2001 in there by making it kind of white. Um, but again, it's color coded in orange. So if you notice that all transport in Biosyn has an orange tone, a bit like the yellow corridors, and it's a bit like in the control room is blue, and it's a bit like in the in the other labs that the public can go to are green and brown. And so again, there's a whole color palette thing that goes on with all these things. Um, um, but the Hyperloop itself, including even the way that that door opens, that was all done practically. So when they press that button and that door goes, I mean, we spent a long time working on that because I've become obsessed on how to do cool openings of doors, like after Minnelli and Falcon hatch opening, that I was looking for something just as cool for the Hyperloop. Um, and so um, and so we pulled all that off, which was fun. Um, the caves were a lot of fun um, as well. Um, that was actually, believe it or not, shot on the stage that actually Superman learned to fly on in 1978. Um, and that was, and so, you know, and all, and there are shots in there like of the uh, Dimetrodon in the water going towards, that's all in camera because that, that whole cave, that water, the Hyperloop, it was all there. I mean, you know, the, 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 because we planned so much of the project, um, most of what you see was made. The helicopter was made, the full-size helicopter. Um, you know, even the, um, you know, you mentioned the DFW. Um, again, it was all there. The giant plane where they shot, you know, and the, the tires at the end. Um, you know, Biosyn, um, say Canada, Malta. You know, there was very little... Um, not very little because there is always work. But what I mean is it's a predominantly filmed film in an old school way where we filmed the film and put the dinosaurs in. Yeah. And even the dinosaurs were 40% there because there were so many animatronics all over the place. I think it's so cool that this film really embraced what makes Jurassic Park special, which is that practical filmmaking. It just sets it above and beyond. Yeah, I, well, to be honest with you, I don't think it was even to do with Jurassic. It was the fact that, you know, as as a filmmaker and, and, and you know, all of us wanted to, um, again, look, we had a plan. The plan didn't change. And um, it gave us the opportunity to plan properly. And that allowed me to, um, um, to find ways to um, make the world. Because you can make worlds two, two ways these days in modern filmmaking. You can do lots of blue screens and green screens, or you can build it. And um, and if anybody thinks that the myth that, and I've worked in both areas, that CG is cheaper, it's not the case. It's a choice. 
it's a choice. It's not, it's not that one is better or worse than the other or more expensive or cheaper, but, you know, um, everything costs when you're making a film. Um, and, um, and we just made the choice to make it real because we wanted it to hold up and look real for a very long time, like films that I grew up with back in the 70s, 80s and 90s. You know, and we all say today that Jurassic Park looks as good as the day it was made um, because it's predominantly a real film, shot on film in real places. Um, and so that was that was our our thought process. That's really cool. And yeah, I agree fully that by making it practical, you do get that longevity that you don't always get by going through other mediums as well. Um, so I'm excited to shift gears a little bit because we've spoken a quite a bit about locations and some of the really cool little details in locations but also as you mentioned you worked on the dinosaurs and the dinosaur design um and that is something which as you've seen from the internet jurassic fans always get very excited over to uh all the stuff that kind of why did you do this why didn't you do that (laughs) why 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 and it's like well everything's easy with hindsight yeah well, I won't be asking any difficult questions, so don't worry, Kev. Um, I just more want to get you to talk through the processes of some of the different animals. Um, so we'll start with the Parasaurolophus, because obviously this is an animal we've seen before, but in Dominion it has a slight redesign. Um, so I was interested, what was important with that animal when it came to him approaching that redesign? Um, well, actually, the, the, the bigger discussion with myself and Colin was also actually about colour palette, because... Yeah. Look- I'd worked back in the day on on the Walking with Dinos, Dinosaurs TV series, which I thought had some wonderful coloration and designs and skins, and it was all. And, and some of them I still think have never been bettered. And and I, I just with Colin talked about I I wanted to see the the palettes be complementary to the environments, and so um, as well as the designs. And so um, for that reason. Um, we did do um, designs and sculpts and things. Um, and so what I mean is there wasn't a definitive, oh, we're redesigning anything. It's like a natural process. Yeah. Um, the main thing for me was to work on the, the skin coloration to try to, to try to add more color to them because some creatures in the world are bonkers in their color and incredibly bright and colorful. And talking to Steve, um, our paleontologist, Steve Brissett, who, who was on hand the whole time, um, I, you know, that they really to be honest with you it wasn't the main thing we wanted to do was i think for some reason hold on weren't they all like going a bit all fourry or something in the, in the previous films and we wanted to raise them back on their two feet or something i think that was yeah. the main question we wanted this you know it was a wild west sequence at the beginning in the snow and we didn't want them on all fours and so we wanted to bring them back up again i think that's why we re reproportioned them if i remember rightly again people are going to have to not kind of quote me like there's some kind of gospel out there or some <laughs> decision but I've, I've got a feeling that that was one of the conversation again things don't happen because of a definitive that people know two or three years later they happen because oh we have to solve this problem how do you make them run they're on all fours or maybe we raise them up a bit oh well let's redesign them a bit but there's no kind of we are redesigning them because we hate or love everybody it's never that kind of decision it's like we need them to do this so we need to look at them to do that they need to be yeah. sat here so i need them to be that color otherwise you can't see them or you can see them or whatever the answer is 
No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm really excited, actually, to talk a little bit about the prologue for a moment, because obviously that introduced a lot of animals that we hadn't seen before. Um, And particularly um, in that one, I wanted to touch on both the Dreadnoughtus and the Oviraptor. Um, So with those particularly, I'm really curious. Obviously, with Jurassic, you have this pre-established essentially design language for dinosaurs within this franchise so how do you balance that pre-established nature with science as well well it's a catch-22 because in a strange way um look we all know that jurassic dinosaurs have a particular look that's the honest truth um and when you go away from that look um yes they may be more real but they do have a particular style shall we say um, but the new dinosaurs were designed again. Each one, each dinosaur was consulted with Steve, um, and Colin wouldn't let them go forward without a conversation with Steve as to pluses and minuses and that. So nothing was just done because we did things. Um, and the, all the new dinosaurs went through a process of initially, look, I hired um, Raul Martin and I had my sculptors, and we basically did um, sort of work out. Um, what the uh, sort of starting point would be. But, and again, people are going to disagree or not disagree with this. The way I look at Jurassic compared to, should we say, a dinosaur documentary is that these dinosaurs have been manufactured. Yeah. And people can assume a lot of things. And in my mind, the Jurassic dinosaurs had to be recreated with other DNA, which means they're not pure dinosaurs. And I don't believe that maybe any of the designers was a completely pure. And, and as you know, they even decided to make them look a bit like what they wanted to do. And so um, and so in a strange way, we had to kind of embrace that to continue it, knowing that science has actually moved ahead of where Jurassic was even in 20 years. And so unless we all sudden made everyone unrecognizable, um, we had to kind of keep within a sort of certain design style. Otherwise, because when you do go too far away, um, as you know, because we introduced feathered dinosaurs and all these things here that Ju- Jurassic hasn't seen. Um, but when you go too far, um, it can jolt people and go, well, this isn't the film in that series, yeah. even though people think you can. Again, it's really easy to say it when you're at home and you're not doing this. And it's kind of, you know, but but when you're actually trying to keep it all together, um, we have to make decisions that work. But But as I say, you know, um, everyone was consulted, everyone was talked through these things and all the design decisions were all about all the dinosaurs were made in consultation, including even the locusts with actual people that know about these things. Yeah. No, that's really, really interesting. Is what people want, then you have to layer in the, this is a Hollywood movie in a certain style of a franchise and we also need them to be actors and performers. Yeah. Because this isn't a documentary about watching what dinosaurs did at the weekend yeah no that totally makes sense it's a balance we can't please everybody yeah yeah it very much is um one place where i think you did please a lot of people is the atrociraptors um Mm. so i'm interested as to how you approach differentiating them from velociraptors and i've got to ask you because there's some similar patterning there did you take inspiration from the Sauna Velociraptors with the Atrociraptors as well? So, so obviously there's four Atrociraptors. Originally they were going to be Dionychus, yeah. and that's where we started. Um, but I wanted them to be more distinctive um, because, again, 
we had all these conversations about how the world works and everyone's kind of out there guessing about how the world works currently. And so what's not explained in that film is how do you know there's not another company like Biosyn or InGen making dinosaurs in the black market? We didn't talk about it, but we talked about the world being basically now used to them being dinosaurs in the world. And they could have come from all sorts of places. And in fact, she even mentions that these are, you know, purebreds. And so my story in my head, these were bred for... These were bulldogs. These were bred for combat or these were bred for defense or these were bred for the, these were like trained animals that were literally there for one purpose only. They're just there to take people down or to defend against something. And so I, I wanted them to be um, when they turned from Dianicus to Atrociraptors, I, I just decided to kind of almost angularize them more like a ripped hundred meter runner. Yeah. And in a strange way, we were watching a hundred meter race and, and um, you know, we were looking at all these amazing runners like, you know, like Usain Bolt and other people that were so incredibly ripped and taut and tight and, and honed. And then and, and basically that's something we tried. I, I, I got I got Ivan and Martin to try on the sculpts and we did that in ZBrush, which was to kind of angularize them so they would become more angry and aggressive. Now, everyone's going to go, oh, well, Atrociraptors are only three, four, two, three millimeters big. Raptors, even in Jurassic Park, aren't the right size. So who's to say that Biosyn or InGen, if you want to go down the story route, didn't just say I need them to be six foot tall and bred them that way. Again, there's all these things that look. I, I don't. I, I can justify it or not justify it a thousand ways. We try to tell a story, and that's what we did. And some people will love it, and some people aren't going to love it. But that's the way we came up with it. And so the Atrociraptors were designed with that thought process in mind. We- weaponized i want to be careful with the word because they weren't to have guns on and they weren't to do anything they were just literally just thoroughbreds that were made to be angry and pissed off with everybody um and as far as their coloration goes all four of them um were distinctively designed with different color palettes and the only one that had inspiration from any other project because all of them were based on animals like a snow leopard or any of those things the only one is craig mullins did a picture in jurassic park of a very tiger-colored velociraptor that, that was not in Jurassic Park. And so I didn't look at three. I didn't look at two. I didn't look at any game. I looked at Craig Mullins' wonderful painting and went, I like tiger stripes. And that's, that's what, that, that is it. There's no other reason. Cool. Now, that's really awesome. And I do think tiger is probably my favorite velociraptor because that tiger stripe looks beautiful. Redder for me. I could. Have, I would have gone screaming orange, but that's my. That 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 was. That was uh, that was that was not my call. But then again, I love the color. So going from Atrociraptors to the Pyroraptor now, um, as you mentioned earlier, feathers are a unique new addition to the franchise. So I'm interested, what, how, how is that process different than something like the Atrociraptor? Are feathers more of a challenge? Not really. They they were to manufacture it, but not for the design process. You know, in a funny way, it just kind of you know you just have to get used. To, we just have to get used to looking at them because, again, you can see lots of colourful birds and things that we looked at that were screaming red and and all those kind of wonderful colours that, that we sort of chose. But you know, um, we just had to be careful that we didn't make fluffy beasts that that looked you know, soft and squidgy and lovely and all that kind of stuff because it's not that kind of film. And so, again, you know, 
every dinosaur, the entire process was done the same way. Um, blocked out, talked with Steve, blocked out more, changed, talked with Steve more, back and forth with Colin, do more work, get Steve to sign it off, and then Colin will sign it off. Um, so a person that will highlight for me is the fact that we have the Dimetrodon in this film, which is Jurassic's first synapsid. Um, yeah. So what was it like for you actually getting the opportunity to venture outside of that traditional dinosaur remit and try but, something new for the franchise? Well, I mean, you know, again, what most people don't know and what you know, if you're, you know, and all the Jurassic fans know is that a Dimetrodon is not a dinosaur. Yeah. Um, um, and um, but for me, because it's always been that original one million years BC, because I'm a kid from the 70s and we didn't get dinosaurs like this when I was a kid. What I mean is, you know, t- you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, Triceratops, Dimetrodon and then you ran and Tyrannodon and you ran out of names when you were a kid. And so to me, it's one of those classic. Um, it was the classic dinosaur that we're all interested. You know, I was interested in seeing because um, because, again, it's that kind of. You know, um, it, it, to me, it's that the childhood dinosaur that everybody yeah. can draw, and so you know that was that was where that came from. But yeah, I mean, um, and that was made practically, and that was running around the caves, and the fin was in the water. We made a pulley system before we basically flooded the um, flooded the cave set to make that work. So um, you know, and he was he was there running around the set. Um, you know, um, when we were shooting that that sequence. That's so cool. I know in the B-roll there's a shot of um, Isabella with the Dimetrodon behind her on the rocks and that was really cool to see. Um, So that's awesome. So I've got to touch on an aerial animal as well, which is the Quetzalcoatlus. And this is something which I absolutely freaked out in that first trailer when we saw that sequence with the plane. That just blew my mind. Um, So what are some of the challenges with realising something that's so big in comparison to something so small like the Dimetrodon? It's always scale. And and is the scale believable? Because I think that people can't... You know, when you watch prehistoric planet and all those kind of things you you don't get any sense of human scale next to it yeah and when you you know when you see that and again that's why the that's why the um that's why the box car was there which was to the plane was to give it give it context because you you know that's the thing is whenever you see the dinosaur if you don't have something human there you don't have any idea how big it is and so that was why it was to try to contextualize them all the time as far as the design though i mean it's just it's just a huge thing and you design it you know, separately, and then does it look good and how big is it next to the plane and vice versa? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So you've already shown that you're a person who is very aware of the fandom and the internet more broadly, so I'm going to ask you about a dinosaur now, which it's fair to say there's been a lot of discussion about on the internet, Um, and that is the T-Rex, which saw a slight refinement in the design it has in Dominion. So I was interested, how did you approach making the changes to the Rex, where it's got more of the sort of sunken eyes and fuller belly from the first film, I'd say? It's older, it's eaten a bit more. Um, really was that it because in a strange way like the, you know we, we did the one for the, the for the um, for the prologue which obviously had fur on it and was kind of taking it and, and again look it's not it's not real but what I mean is what's inferred for is that the T-Rex that loses and dies to the Giga should we say their DNA should we say this is a match made 65 million years later whether it's the exact ones it doesn't really matter it's the context of the story that's important and so both of the, them is like whether that is you know inferring that that's the t-rex that goes to jurassic park that ingen find 
um, or you know, and whether the Giga sort of dies two meters after that or whatever, and Biosyn find it anyway. Um, but but really, it was just an age thing where the T Rex they only live a certain age, and and so we just literally just made him eat a bit more, yeah. a bit more tired, or make her a bit more tired actually, because it's a she. I did see Colin tweeted something about her age and it made me very sad for a moment because it was something about, oh, she's probably not got long left. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so lastly, we have to touch on the Giganotosaurus or Giganotosaurus, depending on how you would prefer to say it. Um, and I'm interested, how did this animal come to life? And what was the process like working with a large scale animatronic for this? Because I've seen a lot of the behind the scenes photos and that thing is crazy. Yeah, that comes a long time after the design and Colin did always talk about um, and we didn't fire it off until quite late that we were going to do it because as you can imagine making it full size is, is obviously a process um, but from the design point of view um, again looked at lots of reference talked to Steve um, and again there's obviously lots and lots of opinions but what we did need to do in the spirit of Jurassic was give it a bit more character yeah. uh, so you know the original the original discussion that this guy is literally just like a he's like a football hooligan he's just a thug um and so you know um one of the original things we talked about was actually that he was like one of the orcs from the lord of the rings with the white hand on his face and so that you know because his his coloration because again they're brutish and animalistic and so that was one of the original conversations and then we just said that he's unhinged and a bit off his, you know, off his rocker, unlike the T-Rex that seems very thoughtful and very composed and very deliberate. And so that was where some of those, you know, those Joker comments came from was the fact that he's just, just doesn't give a crap. And so, you know, he's just, he's just off, off his brain and, you know, a bit mad. So, you know, but from a design perspective, um, he was the designer that went through the most changes, as in he moved around a bit because, you know, the first sculpts, he kind of he just he looked a bit too old. And then um, and then we tried adding some of the, the scale stuff and all that kind of stuff. And again, if anybody thinks we just make this up, Steve Brissett, go and read his books. He talked to me all the time. And as you know, even we're pinging each other on the Internet currently on Twitter at the moment. So, you know, and, and, and you know, the thing is, like, we know some things about some of these dinosaurs and we know some things we don't know. And, you know, they find things out all the time. But we made a cognitive decision to make someone that the audience. And again, you have to remember what a 10 year old's going to see to go and see these movies. They want to know the difference between that dinosaur and that dinosaur. And so when you're running around at night and you put those two things together, you have to make sure that the, the, the audience that isn't the dinosaur absolute nut that knows all their names backwards and can write it down, that you have to remember that, 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 that 95% of the rest of the world don't know that amount of detail. And so telling a story, they have to understand the clarity between what these two beasts are. And so, all right. Um, and so that, that was the design decision that, that, that was made on the Giga, that, that, of course, people are comparing it and laying over skeletons and doing this and doing that. Look, we didn't we didn't make it up, but we had to tell a story at the same time. So there's always compromises. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's what a lot of people forget is, especially with the storytelling side of things, you do need to make sure that it works for the sequences and that it is distinguishable from everything else in that story. Before it was actually made. So, you know, it was sculpted. And I remember, you know, because I was doing some of the Z brushing towards the end myself with Colin, he would just come in and sit in, in the office and we'd sit and we'd just move it around and, 
you know, move the eyebrows, move the head, move the, you know, I remember when we actually first even did all the, all the, um, all the, all the, all the ridges and the spikes down the back. And I was pulling them around based upon some of the sculpts the guys had done and stuff like that. And then, and then that, that was taken and then, um, given to, 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 to obviously given to ILM because they had to start the process and it was given to John Nolan's team who had to start their process, but ILM still had to wait until John Nolan's team had then, should we say, sculpt it full size. Um, and, you know, and yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it was um, it, obviously, here's the thing. It doesn't make, it doesn't make filming easier when you have a full size dinosaur on a set because yeah. you're trying to do so many things. And so it just adds complications, but that's part of filmmaking. You don't really, you know, you just have to kind of get on with it and solve it. Yeah. I honestly could talk to you for ages about the animals because I think they are something that's so, so special to the Jurassic series. And I did debate just planning a full list of every animal in the film, but I thought, you've not got three hours, so we won't do that. Um, So before we round things up with a couple of final questions, I did just want to give you a chance to touch on any other animals that you were really proud of in this film, if there's anything you want to touch on. I don't want anyone to feel this is the wrong way to say it, but I was you, you're doing so much a designer because I'm trying to get everybody around the world and back and to these other places and on these places. And in a strange way, the dinosaurs, though fun, they're a kind of a bit like doing the spaceships in Star Wars. They're a nice icing on the cake to the rest of the thing that goes around, but everybody needs its equal shot. And all the dinosaurs, I kind of did the design, I did the colour, but then all the detail I had to hand that off to ILM or to John's team. I was just making sure that they were, shall we say, going down a path that I needed for them to be on the sets. And so, um, and so... I suppose what I'm saying is, is there was a lot going on and a lot going on. There's some, yeah. like, Crossoraptors and the Giga you get heavily into, and there's others that you just have to, you know, that just kind of, you know, and actually in the theory as well, I was, that was the other one that had a lot of conversations and a lot of work. Um, and, you know, there's others that just, oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. You know, um, and it's not that we're being flippant or disrespectful. It's just that, you know, um, some are in it for one shot and some are in it for many. Yeah. No, there's a lot to do. Yeah. And, you know, and, um, yeah, and you just got to keep the train moving. Yeah. I wanted to give you a chance at the end here to really touch on um, some of your highlights from working on this film. So this might be a nice chance to maybe talk about your team a little bit, because I know you were keen to make sure that they get some credit as well. So why don't you talk about those highlights? That's the important thing I want people to know is that everything you see in that film, including a cabin that wasn't in Canada, that Dave wonderfully from VFX put the mountains in above it. But all those trees, everything you see and all literally it's like there was a very limited number of green screens in that film. Very, very limited. And so everything you see in that film is is essentially real and we made it or we went to it. And so, you know, I had an amazing art department. Um, you know, Ben Collins was my supervising art director. John Mayer was my construction manager. And again, John got the job because um, he was Stanley Kubrick's construction manager on Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I had my wonderful art department coordinator who kind of runs the whole thing, Louise, who was basically, you know, with all my art directors who were, some came from Star Wars, some I haven't worked with, some I worked with for years. All incredible people. Ollie, who did the vehicles, you know, and, and you know, again, it's like Liam, you know, Tom, Reese, Chris did the plane. I mean, you know, 
Sarah, there's just loads of them, and they were all amazing and working under increase, you know, an amazing amount of pressure because I mean, this was a huge film, um, and there was a there was a huge amount to do, but we found a way to make all of it and to make it all in camera. Um, and so, you know, including down to making that helicopter, which was a full thing. Um, and um, and so I can't praise those guys enough. And in a funny way, the reward was listening to, you know, um, Chris Pratt, Jeff Goldblum, um, all of the people walk onto these sound stages that were complete worlds and say they've never seen anything like this before, not because they haven't been on films with sets, but because in a funny way, I used to be a digital environment artist, so I try to make sure these are worlds that you can shoot on without looking at green walls, unless you really have to. And um, and so, again, everyone was very complimentary about the worlds they were in. Um, and so, you know, all those corridors, all those labs, um, you know, that, that, that was all there across the Pinewood and across, across wherever we filmed, whether it be Canada, Malta or England. I think my vote is to change production designer as a title to just world builder. But that's what they do. Yeah. That 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 you know you're you're the person that is helping everyone build a world with you yeah. and my job because again these crews are massive is to make sure that Colin's vision is distributed amongst the right people to bring that you know to, to where it needs to be and again look you know i i have a background in creatures and visual effects so that's why i kind of quite like getting stuck in with that like on star wars i designed tons of spaceships and all the other things that go with it um and that's why you know again it's like i, I wanted the you know to, to give as much as a complete world to colin as, as humanly possible and that also aids the process with ILM and, and and wonderful my wonderful friend Dave Vickery, who who should we say um, the more information you give everybody else, the better their job's going to be as well, because no one's just going, oh my god, what what is that? I don't know what that looks like, and you know the, everybody knew what we were trying to achieve from a very early stage. Yeah, it's really nice hearing about so much collaboration, and I think that really is the theme that runs through with this film. Um, so I wanted to end with um, a little bit of advice for anyone out there who's listening to this and thinks they want to be a part of that collaboration. Um, so what would you say to anyone who's interested in becoming a production designer or working in production more broadly? Um, well, the film business is very broad in the sense that it's like it's it's kind of got lots of moving parts. Um, I, I obviously work in art departments and do production design, um, which is associated with locations, which is associated with all these other departments. And and the thing is, it's like um, most people I know, I, I knew very clearly whatever I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I've drawn since I was zero years old. And I've been trying to be, a, you know, be a production designer for a very long time through my good friend Rick. It was actually Rick Carter that started me off um, on this path. And um, and most people aren't going to be like that. And so I think if you can just, if you want to work in the film business, there's many aspects that are very interesting, from you know, making full aircraft to sticking them on gimbals to blowing things up to painting things to constructing things to running the finances of things and i think the thing is is if you don't really quite know what you fancy then by working on a film you'll get an idea of oh actually that, that looks more interesting so it's it's very broad and that's why i can't be that specific because again i only
really come at it from like I, I, I fortunately, unfortunately, knew exactly what I wanted to do, um, which is not normal, I suppose. And so, um, for others who just want to be a part of making film, then um, you just have to kind of work your way up and find out which is the bit you like. Cool. That's a great note to end on. So, Kev, thank you so much for your time. Oh, not proper at all. I hope it was um, informative or entertaining or both. <laughs> I hope that those of you who have stayed with us for this show have enjoyed a deep dive into the background of production design on Jurassic World Dominion. It's been awesome hearing so many stories and getting so much insight into just how much work goes into the films we love behind the scenes. We'd love to hear what you thought of this interview. Let us know all your thoughts on social media and I'll catch you in another episode of the Jurassic Park podcast very soon. Thank you so, so much for listening to the 328th episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. A huge thank you goes out to Kevin for joining us this week on the show. And uh, that was just fantastic to hear everything about the production of, hey, one of the biggest movies of 2022, Jurassic World Dominion. So incredible to hear the insights about building these locations, designing everything, it is, you know, it's a dream come true to hear things like this. So thank you so much to Kevin for joining us this week. And of course, a huge thank you to Tom for chatting with Kevin and getting that interview in there. Amazing. Thank you so much. Tom is always so professional. He's got it all down. He nails it every single time. And this one was absolutely no different. So thank you so much to Tom once again. Uh, for chatting this week with Kevin and uh, letting everybody out there learn a little bit about the production design. So thank you both. And don't forget, we are doing the charity drive over on our YouTube channel. So please find a video from this past month, June 2022. Click the donate button, send over as little or as much as you want. And if you don't have a way to donate, please go ahead, share it around, tell people you know. We want to go ahead and help raise money for the Trevor Project, a great organization uh, that needs some help here this Pride Month, this Jurassic June. So please do your best to help support. And as always, I want to say I love you all so much. Stay safe out there. Be kind to each and every person that you interact with. And I, I mean that. Look, I've seen some really bad takes out there online recently. Some community members included. So please, as Jurassic fans, I look, I said this in the intro. I know we... We just talk about Jurassic here, but I want you to keep your eyes peeled. Do your due diligence. Seek out those who are, are fighting against injustices and not just standing by idly or, or saying things that are morally corrupt. You know, the world is filled with opposition, people acting in bad faith, and, and those looking to take away your rights. Um, specifically, women's rights have been attacked here in the United States uh, over the past week or so, and that is something that makes it so much harder to feel safe and secure in your life and taking taking away that ability to choose from women is horrendous so please do your your research uh learn from others that know better 
and uh, allow yourself to, to change if need be. If you think you've known better in the past, if you think you had all the facts, do your research, learn, change, and grow as a person. You know, there's always room to grow and change your mind. You know, if you've thought better in the past, if you think you've thought better in the past. So, um, look, uh, maybe I'm speaking specifically out here, but I've seen a lot of, of weird takes out there on online recently in the community. And I just want to say, look, we stand up for injustices here. We are always fighting for, you know, representation in this community, in this film franchise, we're always seeking out change and equality. And, uh, you know, like I said, we just talk about Jurassic, but we are always trying to make the world a better place. So I hope you try to do that as well out there. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro. Take it away. Saddle up. Let's get this movable feast underway. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter at Jurassic Park Pod and myself at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode's show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.